To Luke chapter 22, we return this morning. We're going to pick up at verse 63. Verses 63 through 71 we'll take up of Luke 22. These uh, tightly packed verses of Luke 22, we have moved quickly from Judas's agreement to betray Jesus to the Passover celebration that became the first Lord's Supper, and from there to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed and arrested. There again, from uh, the Garden to Caiaphas, the high priest's house and courtyard, where Peter uh, denied him three times. All of this has left us quite uh, breathless, were it not for the fact that we've been taking the chapter in small bites over several weeks. Things have been unfolding very, very quickly through the evening, but now the hour of darkness falls in earnest. In the middle of the night, a very long night for Jesus, whose suffering had begun in earnest in the garden and now was intensifying at the violent hands and abusive tongues of the men who were holding Jesus in custody. Just for the sake of context, let me point out to you that Jesus' trial consisted of two main parts, the Jewish trial and the Roman trial. Each of those trials, in part, had several parts, which makes it difficult sometimes to keep all these legal procedures straight, Uh, not a bit like our own system of jurisprudence, right? Uh, what we have before us this morning is, is, is a sort of official Jewish trial, which in order to be binding, had to be conducted in the daylight. Hence Luke's reference in the passage we're about to read to the, pa- the coming of day. The outcome of this trial, however, has already been effectively determined previously in the darkness From the other Gospels, we know that by the time Jesus came to this trial that we'll read about, he'd already appeared before Annas and the the former high priest and Caiaphas, who replaced him as high priest, both of whom had already condemned him uh, in what we might call pre-trial hearings. By the time Jesus appears before the assembly of elders, This morning in the daylight, everyone knows full well what the verdict will be. It is a rigged, it is a fixed uh, trial. Meanwhile, the officers are holding Jesus in custody and are freed from inhibition by the knowledge that this is most certainly a condemned man in their custody, why they inflict on Jesus what we might call an extreme example of police Brutality. This too, Jesus suffered for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will transport us back then to to enter into this history and to learn what you have placed here for us. And uh, Father, among all the other things we want this morning from your word, we want a deeper appreciation for our Savior, and for what he has undergone to purchase us for heaven, for eternal life, for salvation here on earth, Uh, lives of walking with you and with him by the Holy Spirit, whose ministry we ask for now, in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 22, 
verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. We sometimes speak of the offices that Jesus fills as our Redeemer from sin. We're taught in the Bible that Jesus is King. He rules over us, having subdued us to himself, and glad we are of that. And he rules over all the world for the church, turning everything, absolutely everything, to our good and to the glory of God. And defeats as King his enemies, all of them, and Ours. He fills the office also of priest uh, by offering himself as our sacrifice, by interceding for us as he does even today, even this very minute. He is our priest in heaven. And he fills, third, the office of prophet. Here in the abusive custody of the officers of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the church of Jesus' day, we can trace all three of those offices of prophet and priest and king. And indeed, in the next trial, in the one where he'll appear before Pontius Pilate in the next chapter, Pilate will ask Jesus flat out if he is king of the Jews. But it is for his role as prophet here that the officers attack him in the darkness before his crucifixion. They blindfolded him and they beat him with their fists and with blunt objects, one after another, commanding him to prophesy on demand. Who hit you? Luke says they did lots of nasty things to him as they delivered their blows, said lots of nasty things to him as they delivered those physical and verbal blows. The irony, of course, is that Jesus is a prophet. He is the prophet in that he had even prophesied what they were doing. In mocking and beating him, they were doing the very things he had said beforehand, prophesied beforehand that they would do, that they would mock him and treat him shamefully. We read that back in chapter 18. What is more, he taught that those abuses would fulfill the prophecies of ancient 
prophets as well, like Isaiah, that Christ would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. So even as they were taunting him to prophesy, they were unwittingly fulfilling his prophecies. That's just one thing that these verses reveal to us about Jesus. And that's precisely what I want to consider this morning, what we learn about Jesus in this dark episode on the way to the cross. Not that that's the only thing we might uh, consider or might have considered today. We might profitably have considered what this passage tells us about people. It is, after all, the perfect demonstration of the fact that despite outward appearances, oftentimes, man really is evil, desperately wicked to the core. As someone said Uh, half uh, devil, half man. These men were churchmen. These were church officers. These were leaders of God's people who treated Jesus so shamefully. Sometimes we might be tempted, I think, to disagree with the Bible's verdict about mankind and its unwaveringly negative assessment, description, and diagnosis of the human heart. You know many people, you do, unbelievers even, who are very nice people who greet you on the sidewalk and carry on very cordial conversations with you. They loan you that cup of sugar that you need so desperately that minute because the cookies are almost ready to be put into the oven. They're the ones who wave you in in traffic and so on. But the Bible says that there is no one who is good. No, not one. It teaches that the fallen human heart is desperately wicked, full of evil all the time. Passages like this one, in which people who are ordinarily very nice people, even very religious people who love their children, who are devoted to their wives, who go to church regularly, who walk little old ladies across the street and never ever kick dogs, beat not just a good man, but a perfect man and add insult to injury with blasphemies from their mouths, and in the process show what men really are made of. What resides inside even your very nice neighbors? Sin that needs only the right opportunity, only the slightest provocation to show itself in a life. Or we could have spent this morning considering what it means that Jesus was smitten, stricken, and afflicted. In fact, early on last week, I thought that would be the title of today's sermon, and that we would spend this morning turning his torture one way and another, considering in our minds how terrible those blows that fell on Jesus, and especially on him because he was absolutely sinless. I thought about spending the time dwelling on the details of his torture, how his face must have swelled and how he must have felt the nose of his cartilage, the cartilage of his nose being displaced as they struck him and how the taste of his own blood filled his mouth from a devastating cuff and how terrible it must have been 
to be bound and blindfolded, not even being able to anticipate when the next blow would fall, when the next, uh, when next your breath would be taken from you as they punched you in the, in the stomach. Not unlike the way Hollywood likes to focus on the physical gore and blood, and if it's a movie about Jesus, uh, certainly focuses on the details of his beatings. But then it occurred to me that such a sermon would would not be entirely faithful to the Bible itself, which, while reporting that Jesus was tortured, does not titillate uh, its readers with all the sordid and salacious details. Even the often precise and detailed Dr. Luke chooses here only to report that they said many other things against him. Unlike Hollywood... In fact, contrary to Hollywood, the Bible actually steers away from sensationalizing Jesus' passion, his suffering, preferring instead to interpret it in spiritual and therefore much more solemnizing terms. Instead, it seemed to me important to spend the time this morning considering what we learn about Jesus in these verses, what is revealed to us here about our Savior. That, after all, seems clearly to be the intention of Dr. Luke in writing this entire gospel to begin with, to reveal Jesus to us, to show us why he is worthy of your, more than worthy of your faith and trust and of any sacrifice you might be called upon to make in the process of following him as his disciple. Particularly, we will consider the different names used for Jesus in this short paragraph of Scripture and what they tell us about our Savior. The first is in verse 67, Christ. In fact, looking back to verse 66, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. That little phrase By the way, as I hinted before, when day came is an important detail. All the trials are what we might call pre-trial hearings, I guess, if we were going to be charitable about it, that took place overnight, were, according to the Sanhedrin's own rules, totally illegal. Their own laws prohibited them from holding trials at night in the darkness. But then again, their own laws prohibited them from carrying out sentence the same day that verdict was pronounced. And, of course, they did that, crucified Jesus the very same day that they pronounced verdict on him. Like I say, this passage has a lot to say about otherwise outwardly righteous-appearing human beings. What drove them to such breaches, not only of etiquette, but of their own rules, was the way they despised Jesus, and particularly the despise the fact that he was called the Christ. Contrary to popular understanding, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a formal title and a sacred office. It comes from the Greek word which means Messiah or anointed one. The Christ, therefore, is the anointed one of God, the one sent by God, the one promised beforehand. 
by God. That word Christ, by the way, also has kingly overtones, which goes a very long way toward explaining why they were trying so very hard to get Jesus to incriminate himself by saying that he was. And don't entertain the idea, my dear charitable brothers and sisters, that this group of church leaders was actually really truly interested in trying to discern whether or not Jesus might actually be the Christ. No, what they were after was the perfect excuse for accusing him of subverting the Roman emperor by claims to be Christ, to be king. Of course, they hated the emperor, but for a moment they could become his friends in order to do away with a common enemy, this upstart from Galilee. If you are the Christ, say so. If you are the Christ, asks one of my commentaries, of course Jesus is the Christ. Luke has been showing this all the way through his gospel, way back at the beginning when the birth of Jesus was first announced to Mary, the angel Gabriel said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In other words, Jesus would be Israel's anointed king, the Messiah. The Christmas angels said as much to the shepherds out in the fields as we read recently together in this house of worship. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Later Luke tells us that when the baby Jesus was taken into the temple, a man man named Simeon saw the Lord's Christ. Then there's that famous confession of Peter, you remember that? who declared that Jesus is the Christ of God. There are no ifs about it. Jesus is the Christ. Well, Jesus knew why they were asking, and he knew why they were not. Not because they were genuinely interested in knowing. The question itself was utterly, completely insincere, which explains Jesus' answer. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. Past experience, especially recent past experience, had taught Jesus that it didn't matter what he said at this point or even what he did. Even miracles would not convince them. And even if he asked them, they, they, they had by this time uh, been keeping their mouths, as you remember from recent chapters, just keeping their mouths shut all together. When Jesus asked them, suddenly the cat found their tongue. We saw that back in chapter 20 in spades, where Jesus asks them questions and they don't even bother opening their mouths. Their minds were already made up. There was no change. There was no sincerity here. But let me ask you about you. As we've dwelled in this gospel together now, I can hardly believe it, but I think it's been three years in Luke already. Um, Where do you stand on this matter? Do you believe that this is the Christ? Do you believe the angel's promise at Christmas? You must accept 
This confession of Peter, my brothers and sisters, you are the Christ. It must be on your hearts. It must be on your lips as well. Trust in him as the anointed one of God, promised and sent from the Father for just this task to save you from your sin, to spare you the rest of eternity in hell. Receive him. Follow him. Give yourself utterly and completely over to him. Second, a second name or title for Jesus in the passage, Son of Man. Actually, Jesus uses this name for himself. It's his favorite self-designation, the name he used for himself more than 80 times in the Gospels. Like in chapter 9, verse 22, where we heard Jesus say that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now he was telling these very men, I am he, I am the Son of Man. Well, they didn't like that one bit more than they liked the idea that Jesus was the Christ. For you see, the Son of Man in their Bibles, in the book of Daniel in particular, in his prophecy, Son of Man refers to that divine human figure in Daniel's vision who comes in mighty power and splendor to do what? To judge and to take dominion and glory and a kingdom that includes all peoples and nations and languages who will serve him forever. And that Jesus has all of that and more in mind when he uses that title for himself is clearly demonstrated by what Jesus immediately goes on to say in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Imagine that as the blood is trickling from his mouth from the beatings. From now on, the Son of Man will rule. He means the ruler of the whole universe, that he'll be their ruler too. And their judge. Here is another irony of this whole scene, even as they're casting judgment on Jesus, Jesus is claiming the right to judge them. Or more properly stated, I guess the irony is that they are claiming to be his judge. It is utterly ridiculous. They should have been on their knees pleading for his mercy, but instead they're setting themselves up as his judges? It's an irony easily picked up by those with eyes to see it still today. People continue to set themselves up as judges of the judge. We read men like Richard Dawkins calling the God of the Bible a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalom maniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Well, let Dawkins 
try declaring that vitriolic line of judgment on God when he finds himself standing before the judge, the judge, as he most certainly will. He and every other human being who made themselves judges of God will appear before the bench of the Son of Man, Jesus. And those who would not receive him and would not entrust themselves and give themselves over to Jesus, the Son of Man, who set themselves up as his judges, will find that if it may be said of the Son of Man that he is meek and that he is mild, it is certainly not all that he is. And if you've not stopped in your tracks... Today is the day for you to release that clenched fist of yours against the Son of Man and open it to receive him and the gift that he gives of eternal life. To stop judging him and to seek his grace and his mercy before and from this judge, before you find himself as you will sooner than you imagine in his courtroom and then it will be too late which brings me to the third point the third title used for Jesus in our passage son of god as i say and it pointed out to you these are churchmen they understand fully what jesus is saying and that he is claiming what he is claiming by calling himself the son of man he was claiming to be god Their hearts leapt in their chests when he did it. This is what they've been trying so hard to capture Jesus into saying, to trick him into saying, so they could stack their case against him with Rome. So they add this follow-up question just to make it perfectly clear in verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? We all know the answer to that question. We know it because we've understood it from Holy Scripture. Many of us since before we could say Holy Scripture. And others of you since the day the Spirit opened your eyes and your hearts and your minds to receive spiritual things. And we know it if for no other reason than that we've been in Luke together all this time. We've heard the angel visitant to Mary declare that Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High. We were virtually there at the baptism when heaven opened up and the Father declared, You are My beloved Son. And we heard with our spiritual ears the divine confirmation at the transfiguration. The voice saying in that cloud, this is my Son. Jesus is the Son of Man and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus affirmed that by answering when they asked, you say that I am. He was not evading the question or talking in riddles to avoid answering. This was an expression. This was a manner of speech that gave assent, but in a sort of sideways way. It amounts to saying, I am, as you say, the Son of God. One of my commentaries paraphrases it this way. As Jesus saying, well, I would not put it like that, but since you have... I can't deny it. At any rate, they knew what he was saying. They knew 
exactly what he was saying. It was perfectly clear to them. He had blasphemed. He had claimed to be the Son of God. Verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Yet another irony here. Do you see it? They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Of course, we want to ask, you know, will a true blasphemer stand up? But they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. But who is blaspheming? He wasn't blaspheming when he called himself the Son of God, claimed to be that. They were claiming. They were blaspheming for claiming he was not. The sad thing is, these men were just just an answer away. I mean, they were this close in some respects to the truth. They had the right question, didn't they? What further testimony do we need? That's the right question, right? What else do we need to hear? That is the right question. We've heard it from his own lips. What further testimony do we need? The question, I think, is one more example of Dr. Luke's Use wonderful use of irony. How, how ironic to be in just the right place with just the right question and yet miss the answer totally as he's standing right in front of them. Don't you do the same thing. Don't you miss him. What further testimony do you need? What more can he say than to you he has said? He is the Christ. He is the appointed Savior from the Father, come to save us from our sins, come to give us eternal life. He is the Son of Man who is and who will be your judge. And he is the Son of God. Believe what he says. And you will find salvation for yourself in him, the Son of God and the Son of Man.